Hello, Harry. How you oh, doing? Mate, you all right? Very good, thanks. Very good. good yeah, cheers for doing this, mate. Appreciate it. No, no problem. No problem. Um, hopefully, my I'm I'm recording as well. Oh, excellent! All right, cool. Yes, I am. Yeah, yeah. Great. Sounds pretty good, anyway. To be fair, have we met before? I think we've met. I was thinking, <laughs> got a vague memory of meeting after a Paddington's gig at Yuli. Uh, oh, oh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we went to some bowling alley or something. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, I know the bowling alley. But right. then um, I was talking to my mate last night and he said he remembers watching you in a hole in a place called Lamp. And uh, and he went back to a party, a guy called Sean Carnes house or something. Okay, yeah, probably, <laughs> probably. I don't don't remember all of the after parties for sure. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't remember you playing hole, so I must have missed that one, but... Uh, but yeah, obviously, yeah. No, you threw uh, to Tom and everyone, so you sure. mates to them back in the day, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Uh, so you're in London, yeah? I am, yeah, yeah. In in London, where about what about yourself? Where are you? Uh, in Manchester. Ah, uh, okay, okay. But yeah, um, but yeah, what are you up to these days, kind of thing? I'm doing lots of different things, to be honest. So I do music stuff. I've got a, a creative music agency. So we, we, I basically am a music supervisor. So I sit between like clients and whoever's making the music and I kind of turn the visual speak into sound speak and kind of mediate between the two and get the job done. Okay. So I do that. And then I've done that for film as well, but then I dress things and people as well. So I dress bands or short films or commercials, um, yeah, so I, yeah, there's that, but that's what's kind of keeping me busy at the moment. Anyway, okay, cool. Yeah, well, I guess we'll we'll get into how you ended up at that point anyway. But sure, um, sure. I suppose to get a bit of context and everything, like take us back to the early days, like the early nineties, like what you up to and how did you end up in Casals? I I was in I was in Camden and I had a I had a store in Camden. I used to deal in vintage clothes. And uh, through that, I was meeting a lot of people and I was, I was in a nightclub sort of four or five nights a week, to be honest. Um, very sociable back then. And then we opened a little shop with some partners in Covent Garden and it didn't kind of work out and I never got paid. And just at that moment, I'd started working with, with Dan, writing songs, who was, who was the lead guitarist in Cazelles. And unbeknownst to us, uh, Luca had been writing with Ali Love and just as that whole kind of thing, the shop ended, the band had just been coming together, and then I got offered a record deal. So it felt quite, we were sort of, I don't know, we were probably out for about eight months, maybe, before we got offered the first, like, single deal. Um, okay. So what, year, what year was that? I don't know. I want to say 2005. Okay, right. Maybe two thousand in the 2004 something like that um but yeah so i'd been i'd been in bands before but i'd been the drummer and i'd written all the lyrics in the bands i've been in before but i hadn't been in a band for like five years or something yeah about five six years um 
so it was a big big change you know becoming the becoming the front man so it mm. took us a while to um work that out um but yeah it was um it was i don't know it kind of it happened i feel like the beginning of it happened quite quite quickly maybe i it definitely didn't feel like that at the time but <laughs> looking back at it i remember being like this needs to speed up you know <laughs> but um yeah yeah we, we were rehearsing six days a week um you know and and we were very lucky the guy that ended up being our manager sean mccluskey our first manager he was doing a club weekly in shoreditch and we had a studio down the road that we were rehearsing in that belonged to him basically and then every time we wrote a new song we could take it to the club once a week and he put us on first so we try stuff out and if we saw that it was you know it didn't work then we'd go back and we'd you know work on it so it was kind of a good way to sort of um test w w what we were doing who we were really um that definitely helped hmm. so did you have like quite a high tenor of, a, of songs then or did you have like no no group of songs that you really liked yeah yeah not particularly no we spent a lot of time kind of honing things um really yeah not loads there are yeah there's a there's definitely a good chunk of things that people never we never recorded or released um which is a shame but yeah so is that the first time you've been signed in a band yes yeah so what was um what do you think the difference was in compared to your previous ones um i mean they were completely uncomparable yeah i mean there was a i want to say there was a machine there, there wasn't there was just like a there was a group of people and, and they had momentum it wasn't very organized um and it felt very sort of um natural really with the with the momentum because we we got signed to one two three four it was the same label that baby shambles were on so you know their manager was the label manager basically as well and so you know it was all it was all one thing essentially um we 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 were with them that's how we ended up touring with them Really. Oh, okay. Was that uh, James Mallard? Yes. Right, okay. Yes. Yeah, I've heard a few things that, like, he was quite, yeah, it was a quite a good label to be on in terms of, I don't know, kind of favouring the artist kind of thing. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, and the artwork and stuff and the freedom in it was was awesome. Um, but it, it was pretty out of control you know like a, <laughs> like a high speed train with no brakes you know it just went where it went and you just kind of went with it you know um, yeah 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 i was i've read pete docky's book recently and the stuff about him like uh yeah he's a pretty freewheeling kind of guy <laughs> i've not read the book but yeah i mean he's he's an ex he's an ex-soldier you know i think he was in afghanistan um yeah he could get he could get the job done you know, he wasn't sort of bright, wasn't intimidated by anybody. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, you say obviously eight within eight months you've been signed to them. Was there kind of a point where you felt like you had something going where you started building a bit of momentum? Definitely. Yeah. Um I think once you you know, once you work out who you are, which we'd before we we kind of we were the label were very kind of good at waiting for us to kind of hone who we are, who we, who we wanted to be. And then we hit on it. And then suddenly, you know, suddenly you get it and you're like, oh, well, 
we know exactly what we're doing now and everything became a lot clearer. I wouldn't say it became easier, but it became a lot clearer. Um, so the, the label helped in us kind of developing that. Um, sorry, am I going off piece? What was your question? No, no, it's just about when uh, when you kind of felt like you were going in the right direction kind of thing, yeah? Yeah, I guess I guess right from the beginning, really. Once we'd once we'd recorded the first single, we 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 knew who who we were, really. So yeah, it felt pretty straight, fairly straightforward from then. Yeah, Mama. cool. And then yeah, like the label mates, it likes a baby shambles. Like, did you feel part of a scene early on? Uh, no, is the honest truth. We. We originally, like I said, we played in Sean McCluskey's club in Shoreditch. And that was the stuff that he was putting on there and the bands they had on there were a lot more kind of avant-garde and a bit more underground um, stuff, really. Um, so, you know, it's this thing with parallel universes. Like, it, um, yeah, it didn't really, yeah, it was different. It was a different crowd. I think from where we originally kind of started with, with Sean and and that stuff, um, but it, it it didn't feel weird. It didn't feel weird. And then we we definitely nabbed some of those fans mm. and, and brought some of the other ones w- with us. I think as well. Um, yeah. But I was I was listening to Gemma's interview yesterday, which was really lovely. I haven't seen her in ages, and I remembered I completely forgot that the reason why. Warren ended up playing drums in the band is because of Gemma. We had loads of different people sitting in playing drums for us. Martin, our bass player, producer, he'd actually played the drums on the first single. And Gemma turned up one day, uh, I think at the record label, about half four or five o'clock, saying, I've seen your drummer. I've seen him. You've got, <laughs> you know, this guy's amazing. And we're like, who, who? He's like, oh, well, I saw him play a couple of nights ago. He's got a gig tonight. You need to go. And we're like, okay, great. You know, we'll, we'll go. Where is it? And she said, Stoke, you know, it's like <laughs> five o'clock in Shoreditch. And we're like, okay. And she's like, right, fuck it. I'm driving you. So we just got in the car and me and Luca went, went to Stoke. Um, we went to the place that Matt, um, it's Baby Sandwich booking um, agent used to own. God, I can't remember what it, it's not the sugar mill. It's the other one, the other sort of famous one there. Anyway, it was, it, Warren was playing there in this in this band and he was as soon as we heard him we were just like absolutely blown away and then we had the awkward time of trying to get him away from his band so we could invite him to london to um uh come for a rehearsal and and i think Gemma slipped in my phone number and then came down about three days later and i don't think he went back for a good well that was it he was he was in he was in the band you know um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, on the yeah. sofa. Yeah, and Gemma actually, when I put out for questions for you, Gemma just replied just to say hello, basically. <laughs> she's a sweetheart. She really is. Yeah. She really is. She's very, very, I mean, all those baby shambles guys, you know, like, you know, they all went above and beyond to be nice to us. I can't tell you, like, how much we owed them back then, you know. When we were on tour with them, we were going, we got off of the Irish leg of their tour and, we didn't have enough money, you know, it didn't pay you loads then. We didn't have enough money to go. And Pete found out. So he was like, well, you're coming. And he paid for it all out of his own pocket to take us to to Ireland and that tour. Um, and Drew, you know, 
bent over backwards. He sat in with the band a few times as well. He he um, he actually stepped in at my wedding in, in April as well. The bass player for the band had COVID. <laughs> And he learned 32 songs in the morning <laughs> wow. and then turned up and played, played us in the wedding band. Um, yeah, he's a, he's an absolute sweetheart, but yeah, I mean, yeah, even like when we, we weren't earning a lot of money and when we lived in Shoreditch, I think there were seven or eight of us living in one house and it had three bedrooms, you know, hmm. and, um, Docky find out we didn't have enough money and he paid our rent, you know, wow. so yeah, that yeah, very very kind. Yeah, very kind. yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, talking to Tom and the rest of the Paddingtons, like they, I think they had a similar relationship where he's like a he's like a big brother to them. I think mm. he like he like looking out for smaller or upcoming bands. I think that's yes. the impression you get. Very much so. Very very much so. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I knew Pete from before he was in the Libertines. Ah, right, okay. Yeah, I'd met him originally hanging out in Camden when I had stole because he lived in in Camden. I, I I did actually play at one of the first Lib shows. I played right. bongos in the Scene Club in um, Soho on Dean Street when Scarborough Steve was the lead singer, and I don't <laughs> even think we'd rehearsed. I think they'd given me a tape with some songs on it, and then I just turned up and I just sort of tapped along in the background while somebody held Steve up you know like you've seen those old videos of Shane McGowan where he can't hold himself up but still he remembers the words <laughs> Steve was like that somebody was behind him and he was sort of you know on a on a stall a high stall while somebody's sort of holding him on it but he remembered the words it was uh, it's, it's quite impressive oh, okay so you were in an early version of the Libertines then well that well, one for a night. That, <laughs> what, that I sat in and bongos yeah one, <laughs> one show <laughs> yes could you ever have uh, foreseen what was going to happen at that point? God, no. Mm. No idea. I mean, when Pete first told me that he was forming a band, it was a real moment in London where nobody wanted to be in a band. People have been in bands. That everywhere had been bands. And it was like, actually, there was some really interesting electronic music coming out. And it just felt like a bit of a breather for a moment. And then he was like, I'm starting a band. And I was like, wow, you're, you're crazy. Like, really? <laughs> um, but he was definitely on the front foot with it. He timed it right, you know. He was there at exactly the right moment with the right, you know, that 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 honesty that he has. Um, that just that w- the world needed, you know, at that moment. Um, yeah, felt good. Yeah, and I'm very Carl saying like they kind of created the scene around them, kind of thing. Were you? Do you see that happening? Yes. Very much so. You know, they, they were Pied Pipers of, of, of the, you know, Strange and Lost. And, you know, they did a great job of sort of gathering all these people and making a scene. I, it's a real talent and it's a real uh, skill and it's not something that I could do ever. Like being with people all the time in mm. this kind of giant sort of harem of people around you all the time. I uh I can I, I wouldn't I'm not comfortable with that. I wouldn't be yeah, feel a bit weird. Uh, <laughs> I know what you mean, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. But um yeah, no, it, it it was I think yeah, a lot of the, the fans and the band it kind of really crossed over for them. You know, they were all kind of one for the libs anyway. Um, mm. for a long time. And there's like kind of some kind of like mad poetry nights going on with Wolfman and stuff around. 
different things. Yeah, I don't remember being at any poetry nights. I mean, I yeah, I mean, obviously, I saw the Libs play in um, early shows. Um, I remember one really good show at the Barfly that I saw that was that was ran that um, Queens of Noise put on. Um, that was really good, and I and I DJed actually. I DJed for that show as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Cool. So were you inspired by that kind of thing, or were you already doing your own thing at that point? Uh, was I inspired by them? No, is the honest truth. I like what they were doing, but um, it was different to what um, I, me and the whole band are incredibly eclectic with the things that we're into. Um, and I think when we started off first writing, we were quite garagey because ultimately it was easier to write and you know, I wasn't an experienced singer. Um, and, you know, the, the more, the better you get, the more technical the songs get. And when Martin joined the band, um, he was the he was the one who really focused us. Before that, Ali Love was the bass player, who oh, sung yeah. on, you know, uh, Justice, uh, Chemical Brothers Records. Hot, he ended up being in, Luca was in Hot Natured with him. Um, so... So yeah, he was the original bass player. But when Martin came in, it was Martin uh, was at music college. You know, he's a like proper trained musician, and he was just like, no, no, we need to do it this and or, you know, a great arranger. So he kind of made sense of it all, and um, then things got a lot, a lot simpler in that regard. Oh, okay, so it's kind of good to have that direction. Well, yeah, you always, you know, a band is a band needs all these different people with their different little touches everybody brings a different flavor to it but then ultimately somebody's got to organize it all and uh, mine is very very good at that <laughs> yeah and i mean like like say you're rehearsing six days a week but everyone's got to be really committed to that obviously yeah we really were well the reason why we ended up being called gazelles is because the one of the only things that was paying for our rehearsals was me selling vintage sunglasses which were called gazelles all oh, right and we just wanted something that we can make our own. And we were just sort of, yeah, off a long list. It kind of, it felt right. So we went, so we went with that. Um, yes. So how, how old are you at this point out of interest? Uh, God, I don't know. Um, maybe 23, 23. Uh, okay. 23. So I'm, I'm a bit, I'm, I'm older than Martin and Dan and Warren and me and Luca are around the same. So I'm 42 now. So out of a lot of those bands that we were playing with, I guess we were a little bit older. I mean, Pete's still older than me, I guess, Doki and Drew, but not much, a year year or two, innit? Um, yeah. Hmm. I'll call you. So you kind of like, you're at a point where you, can't, you knew what you liked kind of thing at that point. Yeah, I was really lucky. Well, <clears throat> I was really lucky. I left school at 16. I wasn't even allowed in the sixth form and, and I was just into my music and I was... Uh, lurking around this record shop. I lurked around this record shop for like two years after school until it closed and I was just reading all the sleeves, making a nuisance of myself. And then one Christmas, all the staff pulled a sickie and I ended up get, getting a job there, which um, then I ended up being there for like four years. And by the time I was 19, I was it was only a small chain of record stores. There was like six, six of them maybe, but I was buying all the indie for the whole chain. And uh, I was managing my own store when I was 19. Oh, right. Okay. Like a total, 
you know, it's a dream job when you're a 19 year old to be like having the keys for your own record store and, and, and buying things. Yeah. So yeah, I really knew, I really knew my music uh, early on. I really tried to pre-internet. I was like, like I said, I was reading every sleeve note, every, every anything that I could get information, you know, and just taking it all in as fast as I could really. Mm. So who obviously have been listening to you? album again uh last couple of days and oh nice really enjoying it and uh i mean the comparison you must have got at the time would be the jam i assume with some of the sounds i don't remember i remember people saying that a little bit about my lyrics i mean i absolutely love the jam so for me that's the biggest compliment (laughs) i absolutely love the jam so i mean yeah i would it would I, it's definitely an influence on me 100 percent. how can you not you know a, a, a working class voice telling stories like that is you know I, I love it yeah yeah yes and um i mean who were your biggest or who were you into at the time or who were you into when you were growing up really well uh me and luca we were mods when we were you know when we were like 17 to sort of early 20s um yeah we so we we very much like listen to a load of soul music 60s R&B, you know, who, um, small faces, you know, the, the sort of the, 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 the known stuff, but also we went a bit deeper with the new untouchables. We used to do this, go to this thing called the new untouchables. So it's kind of more underground, like psychedelic stuff as well. And so, yeah, um, naming particular bands would, is kind of hard because it's more particular songs and genres but that kind of freak beat r&b psychedelia lots of soul um i'm a, I'm a big soulie my mum was a soul dj as well so i inherited a lot of records from her um still i still play soul now so um yeah, that, yeah. Is, that, is that a good answer <laughs> yeah i mean it's a very broad question so <laughs> yeah yeah it's hard i mean the influences on the band there was there was a lot of there was a lot of influences from my point of view on the band, I just wanted to, I just wanted to tell stories and I just wanted them. I can't remember. It might be somebody, somebody from the clash maybe, or somebody told the clash that they should write about what they know. And I remember reading that and thinking, okay, well, I'm not, yeah, I'm not pretending to be somebody else. I'll write about what I know. And then it sounds believable. You know what I mean? Mm. No, yeah, definitely. comes across. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I read that you supported Daft Punk at, at one point as well. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah, what was um, that like? Yeah, it was well. With our when we got our second record deal, um, an album deal, um, it was with um, Kitsune, and at the time, Kitsune were putting out all these um, singles, these remixes and stuff of like Klaxons, uh, the Gossip, um, um, lots like, of things. Yeah, I remember that. I remember. Yeah. The album with the red sleeve, I remember. Uh, Ooh, like, I lots of these, the compilations had like yeah, lots that was of cartoons one, yeah. on them of, of all the bands, like Block Party and stuff like that. Yeah, the first, the first band actually that we ever supported that was that was like a good time band was was um, probably Block Party, I think. Right. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, but we with Sean in Shoreditch, we'd ended up supporting. 
the liars and uh, 1979 uh, death from above 1979 um but the yeah kitsune kitsune was started by a guy that used to be like a kind of anr manager um and he's the guy that got phoenix signed originally and he co-managed daft punk uh, when they first got signed um uh, he heard us on somebody played him poor innocent boys when he was in in japan actually two different people played in poor innocent boys that was it in japan and he heard it and then we ended up signing with those guys and um the those french those french people you know they're very they're, they are they're they're known as le clique you know some of that crew they're very good at like if one of them is getting behind something, they're all getting behind it, right? So once we were part of that crew, we were in everybody, you know. So um, they, we were the first band that they signed as a full band for the album, for an album. Um, and they borrowed the money off Mr. A, the graffitiized, um, who's in the, you've seen the documentary Exit Through the Gift Shop, the Banksy documentary. Okay, um, right. He, he, he's in that, but he's one of the most famous, uh, you know, street artists, graffiti artists in France. He bankrolled the record. Um, and, yeah, like I say, all those French guys, they all, they all know each other. And then so we got on Daft Punk's radar, and then they really liked the record, and wow. uh, which was which was incredible. Um, and so, yeah, they asked us to, to come on tour with them, um, and we did... Yeah, open up stadiums for Daft Punk. Wow. Pretty, pretty epic. Like 14 to 18,000 people like a night, you know. Yeah, yeah. All filling up. Yeah, it was in, in, incredible experience. Um, amazing lineup. There was like Kavinsky, Sebe- Sebastian, Busy P, uh, and us, and another band whose name I can't remember, a Japanese band. Um, but yeah, that was a lot of, a lot of fun. Yeah, very nice to us, those guys. Yeah, lovely. Was that like all across Europe kind of thing? That Those shows were across Japan. Ah, right, okay. Yeah, that we were supposed to do a um, the big day out and um, some more shows in Asia, but due to things being delayed, we didn't, yeah, we weren't we weren't able to do those shows, which was absolutely game, so. Okay. Things thing like... like- Go on, sorry, mate. I was going to say, yeah, you know, timing, start, stars don't align. We were supposed to go on tour with um, LCD Sound System as well, and we didn't because we were still in the studio making the record. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah it's just it's, the way it goes sometimes. Yeah, yeah, there's still like a mega experience doing those stadiums. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, yeah, incredible, incredible. <laughs> What's it like? You're like trying to... I don't know, you're there trying to win people over or are you just kind of enjoying the experience kind of thing? Uh, I, I am trying to win people over. Yeah, I mean, I want people to like me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean, being the opening act or whatever, yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's not. It's kind of hard to quantify a Japanese audience compared to a European audience. You know, they're, they're, um, if you someone had said to me before I went, Whatever you do, they'll copy you. You know, if you raise your arms up and clap, they clap. You know, if you do anything, they'll do it back. And I remember trying it and it worked. It was just like <laughs> absolutely mental. Yeah. yeah. 
Just be a Freddie Mercury for a night kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, just bonkers. I also, we also got to go in the pyramid as well. So I, right. I, I, I did get to go in there, not while they were playing, obviously, but um, I have, I did get to stand in the Daft Punk pyramid, <laughs> which is pretty awesome. And I've held the helmets too. <laughs> Quite, yeah. I bet it's mad like seeing a Daft Punk crowd from the stage. But everyone just goes bananas. Oh, yeah. Completely insane. Yeah. 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 Incredible. Incredible. Uh, back to the album then. Just interested in, you know, some of the lyrics and with the likes of New Boy in Town. Um, what was that based on? Was that based on kind of a bit of a London scene at the time or where did that come oh, from? Uh, New York. Ah, right. I'd been to New York. I'd had a messy breakup and... Uh, a mate of mine was scoping New York out because he, he had an American missus and he was going to move back there. And I got some other mates who are American and some other British friends and they were all, they were all going and I didn't have any money. And I luckily managed to borrow some money and went to New York pretty, pretty penniless. But I kind of instantly fell in with people that had, you know, that, that we knew from London. There was a, there was a woman called Angela who used to, um, uh, she used to know a lot of bands, shall we say. She hung out with a lot of bands. So she, we, we were all crashing at her giant pad. Um, and uh, I, I ended up with some of those kind of like, it was this electro clash band called Wit. And I'd, I'd only been in New York for like two days. And then suddenly I was sort of jumping out of like cars with them getting packed like going into parties and like just this really weird and the way that people were introducing me and the conversations I were having, I just felt like I was in a strange disjointed movie, you know, and it didn't really, it didn't feel real. Um, and yeah, so that's, that, that's kind of, yeah, that, that song is about that weird disjointed experience of um, New York. Okay, cool. I mean, yeah, looking back, I was quite young at the time, but I used to, you know, come, come down to London and knock around with the Paddingtons. But I guess, you know, it took a, it was a real mix of people. I suppose people like on the podcast were talked how later on it got a bit cynical kind of thing. And people would be kind of, I don't know, trying to get something out of the scene. Is that something you kind of saw happening? Um, I mean, some people are always after something, you know, not everybody. I'm cynical. Yeah, I mean, it's it, you know when you when you add an extra layer of people have got um, you know drug habits to pay for, not just the rent and putting some food on the table, then it does add an extra la layer, you know, definitely um, cynical. Yeah, I mean, you know, the world was was actually in hindsight a very different place when we when we when we started in Cazelles. So. Um, yeah, it was pretty, pretty mean and pretty, <laughs> yeah, pretty ugly at points, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, still a lot of good times, obviously, but yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Indeed. Yeah. And then, yeah, just more about the album, really, like, uh, in terms of recording it, like, who who produced it? Um, so Martin was producing, uh, producing it, our bass player, Martin Dubka, um, but with a guy called um, Julian uh, Delfo, who... He did like Herman June and he'd done stuff with Phoenix. Um, 
and yeah, he's done a he's done a lot of um, of interesting people, um, and yeah, um, so it was the two of the, the two of them together really that produced the record. Okay, and whereabouts was that? It was in um, Sacré in Paris, in this big old jazz studio, an amazing studio. I've heard it's not there anymore, which is heartbreaking. They've been there since the fifties. And the guy who owned it just smoked weed all day. And apparently all the money he earned from the studio, he just bought, he spent on vintage gear, just more like microphones, you know, <laughs> stuff was just racked up in there. It was insane. Um, so we were supposed to be there for six weeks, but then some kind of information got lost in translation. And we ended up, I had to be there a bit longer to um, record. I hadn't, I mean, it was there for like seven weeks before I did any singing, I think, you know, I was writing. Um, but yeah, I was, I was there. I ended up being there for like two months living in um, Hotel Amour um, uh, there, which is this famous little boutique hotel that, that um, Andre, Mr. A is co-owns and um, all the rooms are done up in different ways, like the ceiling in one bedroom. We, we had to constantly move around because people would request a particular room, you know, in the hotel. They'd kick us out of that one and we'd have to go in another one. But one room had like a hundred mirror balls on the ceiling and mirrored walls. Do you know what I mean? It was, like, <laughs> it was pretty, pretty amazing um, um, place to live for, for two months and a lot of characters through the door uh, in there, for sure. <laughs> and, you know, we had... Um... Lasser from the Rakes on who yes he was talking about uh, when they recorded in Berlin and that kind of added to the the vibe of the album. Did you, do you think being in France kind of added to that for you? Yeah, I think I think just the distance. I don't know if Paris added an extra thing, but I think not being in London was really important. You know, once you have perspective, things become a lot clearer. Uh, um, yeah. So that definitely helped. But yeah, Paris, probably no, not really. Okay, right. How quick was the process of recording the album? Were we able to do it quite quickly? Um, kind of I think, well, we weren't, I think Martin was very organised with how he wanted to do stuff, but it, it was quite technical the way that we did things. So it, it, wasn't, it wasn't fast, let's put it that way. Um, but we weren't, we definitely weren't wasting time in there. He had a very clear, regimented thing of what we're doing, when and how we're doing it. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. And were you happy with it, you know, when you sat down at the end? Do you feel proud of it kind of thing? I'm, I'm incredibly proud of that record. Yeah, I really, really am. Um, I don't think I'd change a note on it, to be honest. I think it's, you know, I, yeah, I don't really do um, those kind of regrets or, you know, it's it's a perfect... It's a, it captures that moment, you know, um, perfectly. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm very pleased with it. I haven't listened to it in a very long time, but <laughs> I am very proud of it. <laughs> oh, well, from my point of view, I think it stands the test of time, like listening to it this week. Really well, that's a, really, that's a relief. That's a relief. Then, you know, obviously you've got to talk about, you've mentioned it, but touring with Baby Shambles, I'm always fascinated to hear people's kind of uh, memories of that was it a bit of a, a crazy time or just enjoyable yeah it was because you know some of it for the right reasons some of it for the wrong reasons obviously you know it was it was a, it was a complete traveling circus and 
you know, they, if, if they were on the tour bus, then we were on the big tour bus with them, you know. Um, so everywhere you went, there'd be paps there, you know, and people are getting messages through MySpace about, do you want to sell a story to a tabloid? You know, oh, right. and this kind of stuff. Um, that wasn't there at the beginning, but it sort of was then closer to the end of it, last two of them. Um, but it was insane because people were just, they were just losing their minds, you know, just like crying their eyes out and they'd be there first thing in the morning outside a venue all day, you know, uh, all night. Yeah, it was... Um, it was it was incredible to 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 witness that that um, that level of of, of uh, hysteria, I guess, and devotion, and people really finding um, connection to their music. Mm. Yeah, it was a, it was a very beautiful thing to see, um, but all in this insane bubble of complete and utter madness, you know. Um, you know, I can't. I can't really go into the full details. <laughs> I think you could t- take a good, a good guess at a lot of it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. No, obviously, yeah. I've read, I've read the book recently. It's really, yeah, it's quite a good insight. It's quite honest in what was going on. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what's in there, so I don't know what I can <laughs> say. I, I wouldn't want to put things out that people don't know. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it's what it's it's what you expect. You know, a lot of people with serious drug habits playing every night of the week. Uh, y- y- yeah. You're obviously like a full-time musician. Like were you just kind of like living the life at that point, just day to day kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, I'd, I'd had a full-time job when I was 16. Um, so I'd always um, works, but when we were in the band, I didn't have a lot of time to do, other stuff especially at that moment like the world's changed massively in that regard people would really take offense if you had like multiple jobs you know it's like you were either in a band or you did something else you know it was very like frowned upon if you did other things and i'd i'd done lots of other things so yeah i was still when i was when i was in the band i was still sometimes assisting stylists um on shoots and um i was i I still dj now i've dj'd since i was 17. So I was DJing. Um, so that was helping, um, that was helping put, you know, pay the rent and put food on the table. But it was very tight. There's a reason why I look so skinny in those photographs. <laughs> I lived on Guinness and Bombay mix. <laughs> and Rollies. Thanks for listening to this episode of 22 Grand Pod. If Naughty's guitar music is your thing, then you might enjoy our Patreon page, where for £3 a month you will get access to the following series. The Naughty's Deep Dive, where we go through the likes of the Stalking Pete Doherty documentary in painful detail. My favourite 2000s album, where patrons and other guests come on to talk about their favourite album of the era. Legend or Landfill, in which we go through Enemy's top 10 albums of each year from 2001 and see if we think they are indeed legendary or for the landfill. Unsigned Stories, where we chat to bands that didn't quite make it in terms of signing that elusive record deal. We also have Fan Stories, where I talk to people about their memories and opinions on all things Naughty's indie. You also get early access to any main podcast episodes and it's also worth checking out the youtube page where you can see extended video versions of the interviews as well as plenty of other bits of commentary and opinion all links are in the description now back to the pod
just about the album. Is it 2008 it came out? I think, yeah, in the UK it came out 2008. Yeah, in the 2008, I think. Okay. And did that feel, that's like a few years after you've started. Did you want it out earlier than that or is it just how it happened? Yeah, it's it's how it happened because we got, we'd got offered record deals by other people um, and they just weren't right. The, some of the people that had offered us the record deals that we really, we, we really liked, but then they didn't have the money to make the record how Martin wanted to make it. And so we just, we just, you know, carried on playing, um, which was hard. I mean, one year, maybe it was 2006, we played over 300 shows in a year and we didn't release a record, nothing, wow. a single. And I didn't really live anywhere. And, you know, we just stayed on the road. So, you know, because it paid us just enough money to eat each day. Um, so it was pretty, there was, yeah, there was, there was a while where it was a bit like, you know, this is, this is hard, but um, it was worth holding out for the right record deal. But I think the reality is, is if somebody had come along with a bit more money, um, then yeah, I think maybe we, you would have got two albums out of us instead of instead of one. Um, but you know that's the, that's the way it goes. Mm. Yeah, so obviously you've got to talk about that. Why did you choose to leave, or why did the band like kind of uh, end? I uh, I think the main reason was we ju- we were just physically and mentally exhausted. I think it had just been a whirlwind where we'd hard, had hardly any breaks ever. We never, we weren't one of those bands where we'll have two months off and then we'll regroup and we'll do this thing. We just did it every day, all day, with no, you know, very rarely did we stop. And um, we just had to stop for our own sanity, really. Um, mm. I think when you spent so long polishing the songs that we polished, I think there becomes a level of, perfection which is very hard to obtain when you're writing new material you know nothing is ever going to be good enough and I think we got to a point where we just couldn't we couldn't really write anything else because it was never gonna measure up um but like I say we were just we'd just been on the road too much and just done it the wrong way you know hadn't eaten right hadn't slept enough had drunk too much you know for years and we just, you know, none of us fell out. None of us fell out at all. We didn't end like badly at all. It was literally like, we just, this just has to be over now. You know, I need to do something else. So. Yeah. yeah. But like you say, it's quite good if you can leave it and like keep those high standards kind of thing. You don't yeah. have to like, you, can't, you don't regret anything you've put out kind of thing. No, no, no. There was an extra track. There was an extra track that went out on the Japanese version of the album, which wasn't brilliant. It's an all right B-side, let's put it that way. Track track, track three on a three, you know, on a three track single maybe. But uh, but other than that, yeah, I think everything else um, I'm incredibly proud of. Yeah. Um, um, I'm annoyed that it's not all on Spotify and I'm, we're, I am going to try and rectify that and get um, Young and Lost single that we did. I think that's on there actually. Um, but the Pornis and Boys EP is not, and I and I'm I really like I really like the tracks on that. Um, so yeah, I'm going to try and I'm going to try and get that that put up uh, again. 
got taken down. Ah, okay. So, cool. I'll look forward to that. Um, but yeah, is, is there anything you would do differently, or is it just you know just how it happened kind of thing? I think yeah. I mean, like I say, I think if we'd have, if I'd have drunk a lot more water, um, <laughs> and we'd sort of scheduled breaks in a sensible way, I think we would have done. I think it would have been more manageable. Um, it could have been more enjoyable. So I think that's the only thing I would I would say. You know, um, yeah. I mean, there's you know, there's yeah, I don't regret. I only regret things I didn't do. I don't regret things I did. Do you know what I mean? There's definitely yeah. a few things I didn't do that I regret. Opportunities that I was given from the band, which I didn't do because I was necessarily with the band. Um, so, but yeah, I, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously it's quite a, you know, it's a popular scene. You must have met a lot of different and interesting people outside of the music kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, other musicians and artists and actors and yeah. Uh, I was thinking about Paris when we, when I went, when we went back to Paris to do the, the, the um, press for the album. Um, we ended up, a friend of mine was working for this director and I went to meet her after I'd been doing these interviews and all these, these directors were doing the same thing for, for films. And um, it was a guy who directed The Wrestler. And they said to me, oh, we're going to go meet Mickey. Do you want to, do you want to come with us? Like Mickey Rourke. And I was like, hell yeah, okay. So, oh, we don't know where he is. He's in a strip club somewhere in Paris. So we're just going to drive around Paris until we, we find him. So we're sort of in this, you know, stretched car, like like a fleet of them with all these other directors um, looking for Mickey Rourke. I mean, eventually we find him somewhere. Someone says, oh, yeah, Mickey's in the back. Yeah, yeah, you know, we go in. And uh, I get introduced to him and we, we had a really great, chat he was telling me about hanging out with the clash and being on the road with the clash and uh being riding with the hell's angels and um yeah he was a bit of a character to say the least um he tried at one point the friend that was with me she's still, still a good friend of mine he she's very attractive and uh and mickey Rourke gets down on his knees in this club and, and pretends to says to this uh my friend you know look i'll, I'll um I'll, I'll suck this guy's dick if you'll if you'll go home with me. And I just thought, <laughs> remember seeing the manager of the strip club running across the, the 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 club, going, "Mickey, no, no, Mickey!" While he's on his knees, you know. <laughs> but Par- Paris was a weird one because, like I said, because of the the clique and like the nightclubs, they own Le Baron nightclub, um, which I ended up working for. Um, you know, we had all these French movie stars in our dressing room. To this day, I have no idea who they are. <laughs> like, you know, really, I have no idea. Most of them were. So, um, yeah, I'm sure there's pictures somewhere. Could piece it together. <laughs> and, you know, obviously the Paddingtons talked to them about getting involved in, like, the fashion side of things. Right. That, did that happen with you guys as well? Yeah, but I was already doing that before I was in a band. Because I had the stall in Camden. I was selling to stylists and designers. Um, Dolce and Gabbana used to come and buy off me personally vintage clothes. Um, 
I used to sell to this guy regularly who then invited me for a meeting um, in Mayfair and then they made me sign an NDA and for two years I looked for sample pieces for Gucci and they would brief me in on the collections and I know I was like 20 years old, you know, and I would then go out and find vintage pieces and then present them to Gucci, um, which was just, I mean, it was, it was madness. It was brilliant. I ended up um, helping stylists find stuff. I was like the go-to guy because the brief change, you know, that suddenly the record company wants something different. Phone, phone Phil and he can get a shop opened at midnight, you know, and he can get you whatever. So I was like this go-to guy um for stuff and i was helping um uh help with like the the kylie minogue um that can't get you out of my head all that cycle and those dancers and all of that stuff the kylie thing I was helping with that and i the person i was hoping said look i'm i'm, I'm screwed i've uh, i'm supposed to do this music video but this kylie thing has come up can you look after the music video for me i've prepped it all you've got to do is put a band in it and just make sure that the crowd are cool in the video. And I was like, okay, cool, cool, I'll do it. And it was for the, the Rapture, House of Jealous Lovers, right? Which the song had already been in the clubs for like three months and everyone knew it. And all the clubs that I was in were absolutely spanking it. Unbeknownst to me, the people who were making a music video had gone around all the nightclubs telling everybody that they needed extras. And um, so when I turned up for the shoot, at Cross Keys and King's Cross, they said to me, oh, look, we've got a bit of a problem. Too many people have turned up and we need you to go outside and pick who you want to be the extras. So I had to line up all of these club kids that I knew, that I would see every week in these clubs and walk down the line and say, yes, no, no, yes. I still, even just saying it, I can still feel it in the pit of my stomach. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I love my, I love my smelly old clothes, really, and I like my designer stuff as well. And um, the old stuff really is, is what I, in, what I'm into. But yeah, we fell in with, um, with Hedy Slimane, uh, which was that was that that in itself is a very funny story. Um, he he basically the first big Baby Shambles tour that we did, um, we were playing uh, Kentish Town Forum. And um, I saw this guy lurking around backstage and he kept walking past our dressing room and he was making me nervous. And, I, you know, I was a bit nervous about this first biggest gig that we played at the time. And eventually I just went and stopped this guy and I was like, mate, you just come in our dressing room, just sit down, you know, have a drink, have a beer, like just like you're putting me on edge, you know. He's like, no, no, it's okay. I'll just have some water, have some water. Okay. So... Turns out he's at every show. He's at Nottingham Rock City, everywhere he's at this guy. So I'm seeing him taking pictures. I'm nice to the guy. Um, and then a couple of weeks later, I get a message from the record label in uh, 1234 saying, oh, um, Hedy wants you to go to Paris um, uh, for Dior. And I was like, I don't know anybody at Dior. Um, they're like, yeah, 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 you do, Hedy. And I'm like... I don't know a guy called Hedy. Like, yeah, yeah, the guy who was taking the pictures. I was like, what? Like, yeah, he's the he's the head designer of Dior. And so I was like, well, okay, of course I'll go to Paris. So they get me a Eurostar ticket and um, and I go over there and I walk in like the giant Dior 
beautiful, you know, luxury offices. And there's, there's the man that I thought was just taking pictures for some French fanzine or something. You know what I mean? It's just like, I was like, why didn't you tell me you did this? You know? Um, it was pretty incredible. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that was, that was a dream come true, really. You know, knowing, when you know the good stuff, you know, when you when you tasted the best of the best, uh, it's hard to go back on things. You know, <laughs> and he was making beautiful things and, it was just, uh, it was incredible. I, I, it was so much fun for me being there. I ended up, um, you know, they would they would cast kids from Baby Shambles gigs or or our gigs or the Rakes gigs to to model in the show, and then I would teach them how to walk, you know. And I'd go over and I'd do the fittings, and Hedy'd say, "Well, what would you change on this?" And I'd say, "Well, actually." I would wear the belt lower and this is, you know, make it shorter here or, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, um, which I just, I'm just, I loved it. I actually loved it. I've still got all of my Dior, very kind Dior gifts. Um, and unfortunately I probably couldn't fit in about, I can fit in the shoes, but I definitely can't <laughs> fit in the, the suiting anymore. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. I was, I was talking to Tom about, um, did he release a book of, of that era and it's got it costs like a few hundred quid the book but it's like yeah pictures of all you guys and stuff i think yeah i yeah it, it didn't come out that long ago probably maybe it came out like seven or eight years ago mm. um yeah yeah me and tom really, I yeah obviously i don't have that book i saw pictures from the exhibition i can't remember if i went to the exhibition or not maybe i think i did go to the exhibition um but yeah i don't yeah i don't have the book unfortunately yeah, I'm sure. Hopefully, if anyone good. has a book and they're listening to this and they'd like to give me one, uh, it'd be great. <laughs> it'd be awesome. All right, Ace, cheers for your time, Phil. Um, we'll just finish on these questions then. Sure. That we've got in. So, first one from previous guest Jeff Catania. Uh, Roddy, Jeff. Uh, yes, yes. Oh, yes, I remember him. He says, "Where, where would?" you'd be now without little Paul in the nineties. Do you know what that means? Yes. He's mate, little Paul. Yeah. 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 He used to be, um, he was this sort of, he looked like, um, uh, uh, uh Dave, Davy Jones from the monkeys. He was oh, like, right. this kind of like, you know, he had this kind of like a uh, short fringe and, uh, sort of, um, paisley button down kind of guy. Uh, very much on the, on the mod scene back in the day. Sweet guy. I have no idea what he, uh, does with himself these days. I haven't heard from him in a long time. Uh, Tom just put uh, can he grow, can he grow a proper tash this is as good as it gets this yeah. is as good as it's ever got <laughs> I can't grow a beard for, for the life of me never never, have, never never will be able to grow a beard it's just not it's not in me unfortunately yeah so, right 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 yeah yeah <laughs> that's as uh, good as Tom's banter gets I think anyway um, <laughs> Ronnie Joyce says can you tell him i'm sorry we shared a rehearsal room and i found a load of their beers and drank them apparently <laughs> if that's the the worst thing he did then uh, <laughs> that's not too bad <laughs> then him he mentioned and my mate joe mentioned about when you're in nathan barley which i, I didn't realize and i watched it again on youtube the other day yeah <laughs> yeah uh, we've i ended up being in quite a few things um around when i was in the band so i was in that and then I was in, I was in a Hammer House, a horror film, 
where you, I, you see a CGI, a sword goes through my throat and comes out the back of my neck um, in this vampire movie. Um, yeah, I, I ended up doing little camp. I was in this French um, uh, French film um, called Envie. Um, yeah, it's good fun. It's good fun acting. I, li- I, I like it. Yeah, yeah. a bit more really. Not great, I mean, just enjoy it. <laughs> I mean, I absolutely love Nathan Bailey. Like, what was, how did that come about and what was it like? Kind of thing? Uh, I, was, I, I came straight from a party there and I was, I turned up, I remember distinctly on that particular day that ended up in that, in that episode, I'd, I turned up on set drinking a can of Stella at about nine in the morning and then they, they shouted at me and, were telling me to go home, and then somebody said, "No, no, no, we'll keep, we'll keep him, we'll keep him." Um, so yeah, so if I look a bit wobbly, it's because I was a bit wobbly. <laughs> okay. Was it your idea to wear flip flops on your ears? I was up there, idea. Uh, that was definitely their idea. <laughs> definitely their idea. Yes. Uh, so was it like Chris Morris that you're working with at that point, or was it? Um, yeah, Charlie Brooker. Uh, uh, I think it was Chris. No, it was Chris Morris that was doing it. I don't remember. I honestly don't remember him being there. Oh, I think okay, right. somebody else was directing. I think he wrote it. And somebody else was directing. I could be wrong. I can't. Right. I can't remember. I was drunk. Um, <laughs> guy Fergie from Glasgow says he says you're one of I the think best. I'm, I remember that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He says you're one of the best bands he saw live. Uh, especially oh. the Baby Shambles gigs. And he said that he, his band supported during at Glasgow Barfly as well. But he just says, do you have a favourite show? Do I have a favourite show with Baby Shambles or just in general? Uh, just in general, I think, yeah. I think when we didn't have a record deal, we played The Is It An Academy um, in the big room and we, we, we pretty much sold it out on a weeknight headlining uh, yeah, we didn't, and we didn't have a record deal. We played it to try and get a record deal, um, and that was a really, that was a really amazing gig uh, for us. I think as a really special show. Um, Brixton with Baby Shambles was a was a was another really a, a big one, I guess for for, for me. Um, wireless Wireless Festivals as well. We played we played Wireless Festival. And the dead weather were on the main stage. And I don't think a lot of people like that first album because suddenly our tent was just absolutely ram. <laughs> and we played a really packed tent. And it was it was incredible. Um yeah, I've got a lot of got I guess I've got a lot of good shows, memories, really. Um yeah, all pretty solid. He also says that he's got a poor innocent boy's tattoo, apparently. So Ah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Course, course, course. <laughs> With the radio and the, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a few, there's a few Kazals tattoos out there that I've seen. I'm very grateful for those. Uh, <laughs> I'd forgot about that. <laughs> um, and then on Twitter, someone must have been a big fan. Um, TNEF Utz. Yeah, he's got four questions, basically. So number one. Okay. How come it took you guys so long to release an album after that initial buzz around the group? I don't know if you've answered that already, really. Yeah, like I said, you know, we we we've been not we got offered record deals, but they didn't have enough money to make the album we wanted to make, so we we just had to hold fire on it, really. And yeah, that's why it goes. 
And then the next one is, I always felt gazelles are massively misunderstood. Unfortunately, often seen as a style of a substance band. Did it frustrate you that people couldn't see past the way you looked? How did the band manage that misconception? Uncomfortably, we managed it. Uncomfortably, uncom really, because, um, yeah, we, yeah, I know, we, we, we liked, you know, I dressed like, like that before, and then the world got into the things that I was wearing. I didn't dress like the fashion. I'd look like that for ages, you know, with my drainpipe jeans and, you know, and very tight jackets and, you know, double-breasted things. And, um, yeah, it was, it was always a bone of contention with how we've been taken seriously as musicians. Um, but I, I guess that happens with a, with a lot of bands, you know. I think the more things you put out, the more people see that you're capable uh, of delivering, I guess. And next one, what was it like playing with the best rhythm section of that era? <laughs> it was incredible. I mean, yeah, they, I mean, Warren, Warren as a drummer is just mind blowing. He's just incredible. He really, really is. Um, yeah, he, with the, those two, as you know, could do anything over the top of those two. It's going, you're going to be all right. Yeah, it's pretty great. <laughs> and a couple more. He says, what's the, what's the synth heavy approach on the album, an actual band decision or record company direction? I always felt it was an odd direction. It was band direction, uh, not record company. I think that we felt like that we, you know, they're songs that we want, needed to refresh them for ourselves as well when we made the album. So we need to have more elements to them that were, were interesting for us as well. So I think adding that extra level of depth um, is what, sonically, that's where we wanted to go, you know. Well, and then he just says at the end, uh, not a question, but a crying shame is a for forgotten classic from the era, uh, especially the lyrics. Um, so, well, that's nice of him to say. I wonder if you, I don't even know, I don't even think I've got a recording of that. Maybe somebody has, but um, yeah, I forgot about that song. We have got a whole um, live uh, album, pretty much. It just needs to be um, mastered. Um, that we did definitely didn't play that song on on that, but yeah, I'd like to put. We got a live in New York thing that we did in two thousand and eight. The guy who was doing our sound at that, the next year won a Grammy um, for producing a record, and the sounds just in, in, incredible. And it was the it was the day two days after Obama had got in the first time, so everyone was buzzing, you know, and I'm just talking about Obama between the tracks and um, you could just feel the atmosphere of just New York because of that, but then the band and everything. And um, it's a, it's a real um, moment. So I'd like to, I'd like to put that on, on, on Spotify as well. I don't know about cry and shame though. I'll, um, if I come across it, I'll, uh, yeah, I'll see how good it sounds. <laughs> <laughs>